If your last name is Percaro, you live in Southern California, and you're in the music industry, your name is Golden. And if your name is Steve Percaro, that gold is translated into multiple Grammys that you've held in your hands over the years. As an original member of the band Toto, keyboardist, composer, and songwriter Steve Percaro has had his share of success. He has written many significant songs over his career, such as Michael Jackson's Human Nature that was recently performed by guitarist John Mayer at Jackson's memorial service in the Staples Center. He's written and performed for artists such as Madonna, The Carpenters, Gary Wright, Diana Ross, Peebo Bryson, Yes, Jefferson Airplane, and others. His discography has included countless musical scores for video, film, and television, and he remains consistently busy in these arenas. With credits on seven Toto albums and ten film scores, Steve doesn't rest on his legacy, nor his family's. Instead, he moves ahead, focused on his desire to confront new musical territory. From his work with James Newton Howard on the Friends album, to the soundtrack to Dune, to Toto, his resilience, along with his family's name, makes him golden. Inside Music Cast welcomes Steve Porcaro. Hey, Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. All right. Hey, you know, about a year ago, we interviewed your dad, Joe Porcaro, and uh, he shared some wonderful stories about his career as a musician as well as his life. But whenever uh, we mentioned any of his three sons, he seemed so proud of what you, Mike, and Jeff have accomplished in your careers. And take us back and describe what it was like growing up in uh, Hartford, Connecticut, in the Porcaro household. <laughs> no, it was great. There was, you know, there was always music around. There was always instruments around. Yeah. Um, it was really a, a, a very nurturing thing. But music was never forced on us at all, you mm-hmm. know. Um, yeah. I think my father, yeah, I know he sounds proud sometimes. I think he's just as amazed as he is proud that, uh, you know, we survived in the music business, you know. Yeah. Really? You know, Jeff, we all knew Jeff was going to do well and stuff. But uh, especially me, I was, you know what I mean, I screwed off quite a bit when I was a kid. I, I wish my parents did everything they could to get me to practice. They begged me to practice. They offered to pay me to practice. Right, right. Um, but I still, you know, was just, I, I just hated practicing for quite a while and, uh, you know, would find any excuse not to, yeah. you know. Well, growing up in your in your home, your your dad told us that, hey, you know, music was on all the time. You had miles on and classical jazz, bebop, and whatever he was into, whatever. And and uh, I mean, is that what that's that's what you probably remember too, right? Yeah, no, I remember very well there being, you know, it was either being classical music, but mainly jazz yeah. uh-huh. and stuff like that. You know, so always really good music. And mm-hmm. then, um, you know, when the Beatles showed up, it just hit us like a ton of bricks because none of us had ever heard anything. Um, remotely like that you know we weren't uh-huh. into you know there was never any elvis or buddy holly or any kind of earlier rock and roll right played in our house so to us you know to us three boys like the beatles were the first band you know right. mm-hmm. and what a first band you know yeah. what I mean? <laughs> no kidding <laughs> so know, trying to follow that up you know oh, no, yeah you mentioned a second ago that you guys pretty much knew that jeff was sort of on his way to uh you know, some some sort of a career in music, but when was it uh, that you discovered your interest in music, and, and when did you actually begin honing in on your skills? Well, it was always, of course it was always there. I always wanted to do it. It just was, you know, as far as commitment to practice goes, and, um, <laughs> you know, for me, it's, you know, as I was an early teenager, I started, you know, knowing that's what I wanted to do, you know. Um, yeah. You know, it was probably around the time the Doors came out or something. I remember when Light My Fire came out on the radio. That was the first solo I learned. You know, I sat there with the record yeah. and learned the solo note for note. You uh-huh. know? Um, and, it, you know, all of a sudden practicing became something, it became something I wanted to do. I was always lucky to have, 
from fifth grade on, I had there was this other kid in school with me who was a great piano player who was much better than I was. Yeah. And mm-hmm. um, I've always seemed to make friends with keyboard players who are better than me. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> you know what I mean? I, he would play these amazing classical pieces, and I wanted to play those. I wanted to. I yeah. wanted to be able to play that. And mm-hmm. practicing stopped becoming such a chore and became something I I really wanted to do. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. I just wanted to be able to play that piece. I just would picture it in my head being able to play it for people and yeah. that kind of drove me you know? mm-hmm. weren't you three um actually um you guys started out playing percussion and drums right yeah we all kind of you know just drums were, were yeah. always around sure. and, uh, you know mike and jeff took drums drum lessons at the same time as each other you know? really huh? right that's right yeah and then actually when the beatles came out they both took guitar for a little time <laughs> you know which served mike down the line but, right yeah uh, so did you guys all get, um, you know, profit from your mother? With the rumor is your mother paid you guys to <laughs> practice. <laughs> she offered to pay us. You she offered, I mean? right? I, I personally, I don't remember Mike and Jeff, but I still, you know, wouldn't to their, you know what I mean? I wouldn't as much as she wanted me to. Right. <laughs> hey, over over the day we've been, um, you know, broadcasting, um, posing this out to our listeners that uh, they can ask some questions if they wanted to. So we've been sort of gathering a, a series of questions, and, and we're going to be throwing out during the interview some random questions from our uh, listeners. Oh, okay? great. So great. the first I hope one. my answers are interesting. Well, here's the first one you're going to find very interesting. Uh, <laughs> your sister, Jolene, she, she basically has a question for you. <laughs> she, 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 and, and her question, obviously, is who's your favorite sister and why? <laughs> <laughs> she posted that today. That's hysterical. <laughs> hysterical. We'll let you answer that offline, okay? Yeah, it's definitely Jolene for obvious reasons. No, she sir. really is the best sister. No, she's always been amazingly supportive and uh, you know, she's just she's she's one of my best friends in the world. <laughs> By the way, we have another message from a, a past guest, uh Jeff Babco. You know, he huh. found out we were going to in- talk with you, and he just says, hey, look, ask Steve, when can I see his studio? I guess he's been begging <laughs> begging to come over to your studio oh, and check it out. Me. Yeah, so he says, oh, hey, he wants, uh, he wants you to give him a buzz and <laughs> check out his studio. Oh, <laughs> I'm, I'm writing this down. Very good. <laughs> He'd want, he'll want to know. <laughs> see, Jeff is like, you know, Jeff's the real deal. Jeff, Jeff Babco, he's, he's amazing. You know? uh, he is amazing. Keyboard players like that are amazing. I got real lucky. You got to, you know, I, 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 I got way into the synth thing real early. Sure. You know, I just kind of saw that I wasn't going to be able to. I wasn't on the level that my brothers were and playing with the guys they were. And there were guys like Patreon and David Foster and right. Michael Lomardian and all these amazing keyboard players. And I, I knew I just didn't have what it took to, to be called for the sessions like they were in. Right. You know, and I had an interest in synths very early on. I just loved, you know, the bells and whistles and mm-hmm. gadgets and lights and all that stuff. And, and um, I got way into it. And, and, and I stumbled into a thing where all these great players would start, you know, would hire me to, to help them with synths. Because they all, mm-hmm. you, know, when, you know, in the early 70s, when they all started getting into synths, they... Right. The guys who could really play really well, they didn't know the first thing about synthesizers. You Absolutely. Know what I mean? The mm-hmm. guys who knew the most about synthesizers, of course, couldn't play worth shit. So yeah. <laughs> I saw this nit- this niche there for me. You know right. what I mean? Yeah. And I, you know, Paige and David Foster and all those guys, that's how I got to work on all these great albums. Is I just kind of snuck in there as the synth programmer. Right. You know? 
Well, I mean, while we're on the topic, I mean, you know, um, you know, one of our correspondents, uh, Max uh, Sape out of San Diego, he has a question, and I'm a keyboardist myself, so I remember the the early days when a lot of the, you know, I remember the DX7 launch and that type of thing. But um, you know, he has a question. He was a, because he has a whole slew of probably vintage keyboards just like you do, and um, you know, let's you know, um, you know, he has a question about the Polyfusion. What what condition is your Polyfusion? <laughs> it's in great condition. It's, is it? Um, it's an amazing condition. Um, we've got so much of it. I'm I'm worried about some of it at this point because we I have more modules mm-hmm. than I do racks. You know, that yeah, I do yeah, yeah. racks to put them in. Sure. Much more modules. So a lot of them are kind of out in the cold. But there's two huge systems that are, are in newly refoamed anvil cases that are really? in, in, in pristine condition. Wow. I think a lot of people out there are happy that it just hasn't collected dust somewhere in the corner, you know? <laughs> no, no, it lives. And it doesn't matter of fact, I've been thinking about pulling out a bunch of it and setting it up. You know? Well, very yeah. cool. I think a lot of a lot of people have gone online, and in fact, last week I was online just to to see some of your instructional videos, and and uh, a really neat clip that I saw was your instruction on on setting the the parameters on the patches for the Moog Moog bass and how to come up with the sounds. I thought that was really cool, you know. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's very neat stuff. We kind of got slightly off topic, and I wanted I wanted to go back. You know, sure. Go ahead. You, you and your family eventually moved uh, from Connecticut out to Los Angeles, and how old were you when you made that move, and was it difficult for you to to adjust at that time? I mean, we were yeah. very excited. We were very excited about it. It was such a huge move. Just uh-huh. uh, my dad moving the whole family out in 1966. Uh-huh. I was just right. turning. It was in August. I turned nine the following September. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was just complete culture shock, you know. And mm-hmm. you know, part of it was, especially for me, turn, just turning nine. You know what I mean? There's definitely a nine-year-old change, and you know, it was the first <laughs> time I saw kids smoking cigarettes, and it's the first time I had friends coming home to school, and they're, you know, coming, I mean, showing up at school, you know, and they were sad because their parents were getting divorced. I mean, I never heard these words before. Right, right. You know, so part of it had to do with my age, part of it had to do with uh, where we were, but it was... It was a very exciting time. You know, we were very starstruck by the fact my dad was playing on these TV shows. <laughs> right. All right. That's what my, my next thought was, you know, moving to L.A., though, in hindsight, turned out to be so important to your career. I mean, you moved there in such an amazing time in music and more particularly an amazing time for studio musicians. Right, and there was, yeah. there was so much work happening in this area during this time. Yep. Yeah. It really was an amazing time. Yeah, and my dad really got in there. He worked really, really hard. He mm-hmm. practiced practiced eight hours a day. Wow. I kid you not. Up until just a few years ago, he stopped wow. doing that. Whenever he would have a day off, I'm telling you, his whole, ever since he moved out here, ever since he moved out here in 66, yeah. he was, you know, he was just basically a bebop drummer and he realized he was going to have to, you know, percussion was going to have to be in his, his main thing in the studios and he was into it, but, um, you know, you've got to be able to sight read when you're, you know, in front of a whole orchestra there. Right, you've right. got to be able to do it the first, second, third time. Exactly. Most. And so he just, he just practiced his sight reading constantly, wow. you know. Wow. And I don't know why that didn't rub off on me. You know, it really pisses <laughs> me off. You are, you, are you not a sight reader? No, not at all. And I'm not a practicer, you know what I mean? Yeah. And here I had my father <laughs> modeling it amazingly, but I just, uh, yeah. um, you know, was pulling teeth to get me to practice a half hour. You know? Right. Exactly. You, you wanted to play baseball. <laughs> not that I was any good at it. I just wanted to do anything other than 
practice. Well, you know, you you went on to attend uh, Grant High School out there, where you eventually met Steve Lukather and David Page and Hungate, and and you know those. I think if I have my facts here correct, those guys had a band called Rural Still Life. And, yeah, no, what it was, it was just David and my brother Jeff. Okay, it's just David and David Jeff. went to the school in another part of the valley. The way they got together was through our fathers, right? Right, mm-hmm. right. My father was a percussionist on the Glenn Campbell show. Right, right. Way back when, and David's father was the music director. That's mm-hmm. right, Marty. So they said, we should get our kids together. Okay. Jeff had had a band before that called the Merciful Souls. That was when he was in junior high school. And then he had another level of it was when they hooked up with David, and uh, they became the band Rural Still Life. Right. Okay, that's right. And when I took it over after they graduated, it just I shortened it to Still Life. David and uh, Jeff went off to, that's the time when they went off to uh, Vegas to play with Sonny and Cher, is that right? Exactly, and that gig was, the person who was who had that gig, who recommended Jeff for that, was David Hungate. Oh, right, mm-hmm. in the there band. That's right, that's right. Mm-hmm. We didn't know David Hungate before that point. I follow you. Yeah, when we that's talked to your... the high school thing. When we talked to your dad, you know, he told us that story about how, uh, how David and uh, Jeff met. Uh, on the set of Glenn Campbell, and I think Jeff was 16 at the time, and I, you, you're the youngest of the three brothers, so how involved were you musically at, around that time, and did your dad also, w- w- did he, was he bringing you out to the set, you know, uh, or, or gigs he was involved in? Oh, yeah, I would go to, especially his movie stuff, not so much the Glenn, uh-huh. I don't think I ever went to the Glenn Campbell show, but I loved going when he was working on movies. Mm-hmm, you know? Right. I'd go and watch him score movies quite a bit. But no, at that time, I'd, if Jeff was 16, I would have been 13 or something like that. And uh-huh. I was just like the annoying little brother that <laughs> shake, you know what I mean, <laughs> that he was trying to get rid of. Um, I set up his drums in those days, you know, just mm-hmm. so they'd let me be around. Right, exactly. Yeah, I was his drum roadie. Well, I've got another correspondent here question here. This is Kim Riley. Uh, she's out of Boca Raton, Florida, and she she's a big Gary Wright fan. And she said uh, she says shortly before graduating from high school, you took that gig with Gary Wright, and I think that was around seventy seven. And seventy five was seventy five. Okay, yeah. was this your was this your first major gig, and and how long did you tour with him? It was my first major gig. I had done something else. I did a week long trip before that when I was like fourteen or something like that. But Gary was my first major gig. Yeah, I got it. Um, I left high school a semester early because I, I just wanted to be on the road like my brothers, you know, mm-hmm. all I wanted to do. All of a sudden mm-hmm. became very, uh, you know, I just locked locked that into my sights, being on the road. That's yeah. All I wanted to do is be on the road with a rock and roll band. Right. And um, Gary gave me a great opportunity to go out. I was with Gary pretty much on and off for like two years. You know, we did mm-hmm. kind of did two tours of the States in a row. And then I, um, and I jumped right from Gary to Boss Gags Band. Mm-hmm. Right, that's right. While you were with Gary, what kind of uh, keyboards were you playing? Was that your first um, exposure to analog programming, and did you uh, help him out with that, or did you learn from Yeah, I mean, the way I got the gig was, uh, you know, he was looking for someone to play Moog bass, mm-hmm. someone who could, who could pull off the Moog bass parts. He was essentially putting together an all-keyboard band except right. for drums. Sure. And uh, he wanted someone to mainly cover that part, someone, so someone had to be able to, pro, you know, program, dial sure. up a pretty decent bass sound as well as play the parts on his record. Right. And, um, so I was, you know, it was kind of the perfect gig for me. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. He wasn't expecting me to blow bebop piano or anything like that. Exactly you know what right. I'm saying? Sure. I could dial in the sounds, and uh, yeah, it was great. And then he, you know, he had on the road like one of the first Oberheim, their four voice, you know, yeah. with the yeah. four individual, you know, uh, synthesizer expander sure. modules. Right. He had one of those on the road, so that was great. I got to play that and That's use cool. that on the road, and. Um, it just was a. It was an incredible, incredible experience because we just opened for 
we would hook up to with a tour, and we would do that for a while. And then even if, if the people who we were touring with had a night off, we mm-hmm. would go and play a college town somewhere. Opening <laughs> for, That's cool. <laughs> opening for someone else. We just were constantly on the go, and, and we wow. got to like open for like Jethro Tull for a month or something like oh, that. that's awesome. And I just would be amazed to watch all the uh, the inner workings of some of these shows, some of these big, big shows, and see how these guys did it. It was, it was so much fun. I was such a fan and was able to be right there. How old were you there uh, when you... 17. 17. Wow. So 17 year old going in and, and you guys are playing, you know, in front of Jethro Tull and that type of thing. I mean, what does a 17 year old do in absorbing all this stuff around him like it's coming at him like a Mack truck, you know? Oh, I was just a sponge, you know? Yeah. yeah. I was just a sponge and it was such an exciting time as far as synthesizing mm-hmm. stuff went. Oh, oh yeah. yeah. It was definitely. Well, it's skipping a lot of details here, you know, about how it all happened. But your brother, you know, Jeff, and, and you know, David Page obviously were the co-founders of Toto, and then you know, they obviously Luke and, and Hungate joined joined in. But how how did you eventually get invited to you know to uh, be in the band? Well, you know, I was a founding member. I was in there with Lukather at mm-hmm. the very beginning. You know, David knew of my ability with synthesizers and stuff, mm-hmm. and uh, he had gotten me the gig with uh, Boss Gags. They had mm-hmm. finished doing Silk Degrees. Sure. They were getting ready to go on the road to promote Silk Degrees with Boz. And, uh, you know, they decided they needed someone to cover the synth parts, you know, which was all of a sudden becoming kind of common in those days. Sure. Yeah. And um, I got the gig, you know. Yeah. I was the perfect guy for the gig to, to cover, you know what I mean, to cover the synth parts and the string ensemble parts, the, mm-hmm. the string arrangements. And then, you know, that was kind of, and Lukather was also on that gig as well. Mm-hmm. Lukather and Hungate was there, and right. Jeff and Paige, and it was essentially yeah. Toto with just a different lead singer. <laughs> right, you know? right. And the record company saw that, and they saw, you know, we were this kind of uh, self-contained band, you know, in, inside Boz's band. And, um, you know, that's why Toto never had to really audition. Just, yeah, yeah right. that was the genesis of the band Toto. Right. And um, we just added our own lead singer, and, you know, I was... One of the founding members, along with uh, Lukather and Hungate, yeah. Jeff and David and Bobby. I guess the typical, when you think about the stereotypical band, there's there's generally one keyboard player. Right. But, but, you know, you guys had the good fortune of having both you and Paige. And how did you guys sort of, I mean, you just sort of spelled it out a second ago, but from a creativity standpoint, how did you guys, you and David, sort of define your roles in the band? Well, see, that's the thing. you got to remember, especially at the beginning. And, you know, there's something I had to be reminded of. I had to remind myself of. And that's that when I first was in the band, it was, you know, I was asked to be in the band strictly to cover David's synth overdubs that uh-huh. he would do on records. You sure. know what I mean? Okay. Uh, um, it was really, it was mostly about that. It was mostly about, uh, uh, you know, David could have found much better keyboard players as far as keyboard players went, but mm-hmm. again, he wanted someone, you know, who could who could cover his synth stuff. And, sure. Uh, um, I was the guy, and of course, that role changed over the years very yeah. quickly. I wasn't happy with just being, you know, his synth geek, you know what I'm saying? Right, right. So uh, David and Jeff and everyone else had to deal with me wanting to take on a bigger role than just being that guy, and mm-hmm. they had to deal with that, which I'm sure was a drag for them sometimes, you know? <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, well, I think this is probably rolling into my next question here, but even though I, you know, I just mentioned that uh, Paige did a lot of the songwriting, and, and uh, you had your hand in writing some songs as well, and some that come to mind are, are taking it back from the right. debut album, and I you think you wrote It's a Feeling from Toto 4, and uh, I think Leah also from Fahrenheit. Uh, and of course, you you also co-wrote a lot of other tracks from other uh, on other I albums. But it. tell me about your songwriting process. And do, do you tend to write lyrics prior to composing the music, or is it the other way around? No, if 
for me, it was always the other way around. For me, it was always about the chord changes. You mm-hmm. know? The progressions. Get the chords right, and all everything else falls into place. And then the lyrics will fall into place. And when, I mean, the, uh, the melody would fall into place once the chords are right, and then then you attach the lyrics after the fact. And, and that's, you know, I think how my song suffered as well as some Toto songs is that lyrics were almost uh, um, an afterthought, you know? Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So the... Um, quality of the lyrics would be dodgy at best, in my opinion. But that was the way I wrote, and I, I in those days, I just kind of left it up to the stars being aligned, you know what I mean? Yeah. I would write so seldomly, and I was I got so deep into the synthesizer thing, and it really took a lot of time away from writing. And like I said, I would start a lot of things, but it, as far as finishing things went, you know, the, the stars would have to be aligned, and mm-hmm. um, it's very different these days. Yeah. Here's another fan question from a guy named uh, Billy Brown, who's a, a big fan of Inside Music Cast. He asks, uh, regarding Leah, the, the track that you wrote, um, you know, he asks, what, what was the inspiration for that song? Leah. Yeah. Oh, uh, my first girlfriend in high school, she had a little sister. Oh, yeah. And I just liked that name for a song. It just kind of, you know, rolled off my tongue when I was just trying to write a love song. Yeah, interesting. It was it was neat. Uh, it was a great melody. I still have one of my favorite tracks. I mean, Thank in you. fact, the three that that you mentioned, Rick, are, uh, are really high on my list. I love it's a feeling, mm-hmm. especially taking it back. And but I do have another one more question from uh, from John Marshall. I'm talking about Leah. He says, um, "Is there a version of Leah with your vocals on it? And might there ever be a, uh, something available to purchase or download or not?" Uh, there is a version with my vocal on it, but no, I don't think I'll ever release it because, okay. um, you know, Joseph did such a great job. Sure. Joseph did such an amazing job. There was just a, a lyric. If I could have that song back, it would be to to fix a lyric that's always bothered me. But, um, <laughs> you know, the, the, you know, the track that we did was just a dream come true for me. I, I, mm-hmm. my brother Jeff and I just really bonded there. He, uh-huh. he uh, I remembered very well, if I could just tell you a quick story, was... I woke up one morning. We were going to work on the the drum part to Leah, and I woke up in the morning, and it was pouring rain out. And mm-hmm. right then, my phone rang, and it was my brother Jeff. And um, oh, I remember we decided we were going to do like a tape loop, like a twenty-four track tape loop, you okay. know, yeah. for Leah. And just the phone rang, and it was Jeff saying, "It looks like a perfect day to make a loop." <laughs> <laughs> and I ran over to his house, and we just spent. We we had Jim Keltner. Uh, Steve Jordan was there, Lenny Castro. Wow. He just put these, he got these drummers like in a half circle and just everyone played like a percussion instrument or something. We just, uh, um, we made these 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 24-track tape loops for the percussion part for Leah. Very cool. And it just was a very memorable day. It was so much fun and uh, just a, a great memory. Can't, can't get tired of it. Can't get tired of that track. Yeah, it was, uh, my <laughs> just, brother and I, you know. Yeah, neat. Well, we have got a uh, track that Steve is allowing us to play for you that was written about five years ago by Steve, along with uh, Mike Sherwood and Julius Robinson, and features a Scottish vocalist by the name of Jamie Kennett. And this is a song called Painting by Numbers, an exclusive here on Inside Music Cast. We make it easy as painting by numbers. We make it easy as. by numbers all of the colors a silhouette of a long lost lover I'm leaning over her shoulder 
always savor the brightest colors when the blue's taking over. She paints the sky and draws me in to every cloud, and it's no For the one who loves her, she dips her brush in the water. Our canvas captures the warmth of summer and the cold winds that caught her. Sometimes we fly in dreams that never. It's no wonder why. All the love that I give to you, so you won't be blue to Painting by number. One more time, you can draw the line, 'cause it's not that hard to follow. Defined by our own design, connecting one another. An empty space. Always. Bye.
And that was the track Painting by Numbers from our guest today, Steve Percaro. Oh, beautiful. Well, uh, to stay on the topic of songwriting here, and, and I think most of our listeners would know, uh, generally most people know that you, you wrote the song Human Nature that was eventually performed by Michael Jackson and landed on his Thriller album, but uh, I'm kind of clueless as to how it happened. I mean, what was this the was this song originally written for Toto or, or for some other purpose or, or specifically for Michael Jackson? You know, it was a song I'd written that I played for the guys, and they, you know, they were pretty... Uh lukewarm about it. You know, it was another typical mid-tempo ballad of mine. It was a typical Steve tune. Um, David had, you know, I don't know if you heard the story, David had, uh, um, Quincy had asked David for songs. Okay. He'd been asking David for songs, and they wanted, and as a matter of fact, to show you how, you know, far from left field, you know, uh, things can be, they originally, they kept asking David, I remember, for a song like My Sharona. Okay. By The Knack. <laughs> okay, that's what they were looking for, for All Michael. Right. And Quincy had asked David for stuff, and, you know, David, of course, is a very well-known songwriter, and David had been, you know, had some grooves laying around and, and was coming up with stuff, and I was kind of, uh, um, you know, we were partners at the Manor. I was living with him at that time, you know what I mean? Um, I just kind of lived in the studio in those days. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, David would ask me, let's, you know, I would help him put things down and help him record it and make a cassette copy, and Quincy would have a runner come over and would pick up a tape, you know, this was going on for like every day for like it'd been a week or something. Uh-huh. And I'd been just, you know, I'd just written Leah, I'd worked on it on the road, I, you know, I was fooling around with it, I had sung a, you know, sung a version of it with just the first verse over and over again. Anyway, um, I had just recorded, a, a, made a, a cassette copy of Human Nature, and um, David uh, called downstairs to me. He said, hey, Quincy's guy is on his way over here. Remember that thing we were doing? We worked on a couple things the night before. He said, will you put those on tape? Hmm. And for some reason, I couldn't find another a clean cassette, so I just, I just rewound mine all the way. You know, I just fast-forwarded mine all the way, rather, mm-hmm. and um, turned the tape around and put David's songs on the beginning of the tape there. Okay. And then the way Quincy tells it is, uh, you know, Quincy got the tape, he listened to Paige's songs, and he just left the cassette running. Oh, and I what see. I think happened is that the yeah. auto-reverse kicked in. Uh-huh, okay. like, you know, yeah. it was probably an hour later, all of a sudden he heard <laughs> the chorus to Human Nature. Interesting. That's a very cool story. Yeah, completely a fluke, you know, total fluke, you know. But basically what, what he was hearing, though, was that just the, uh, the instrumental? That was me. That was my version of it. it gotcha. Any lyrics at that point, or was oh, it? Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. yeah. The chorus, the chorus lyrics have always been exactly uh-huh. like they were the day I wrote it. Interesting. Wow. So with your vocals and the and it was yeah, a rough, with, and I would sing the same verse. Cool. So it was a song about my daughter Heather, and I just was. Uh-huh. It was about an incident in the schoolyard and stuff like that. And I just kind of sang this verse over and over again, and then would go to the chorus. And and he had, uh, he loved the tune and asked me if I if I minded if uh, John Bettis came in and rewrote the verse lyrics. Yeah, said, absolutely, I wouldn't mind at all. And Bettis <laughs> came in, knocked it out of the park, and. That's what you hear. Very, very cool. You know, on the on the beginning, on, on the opening sequence, when you have a little bit of, um, I don't know if it's arpeggiation or mm-hmm. you know that that's going in the fair front. It's a, it's a nice build as to you know until the point where Michael begins singing. But can you remember your keyboard arsenal that you used? What 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 keyboards were you using for that? Pretty well, uh, I can remember analog? pretty well. It was basically I was using a uh, the sequencer that Roland made called a microcomposer. Mm-hmm. And a, and a Jupiter. There was a lot of Jupiter 8 on that stuff. Yeah, okay. And a lot of CS80. And on Human Nature, I also used the old Oberheim 4 voice because it did this. I was trying to cop this Michael Boddicker kind of polyphonic portamento thing. Now, that that, um, 
that sequence at the beginning of Human Nature and the yeah. breaks, that's uh-huh. Page. Page came up with that part. Real good. Okay. Yeah, I'd that's love it. to take credit for it, but I have to, I have to be honest and say that that wow. was Page. Page was there in the studio with me, and, and he came up with that part. That's I have to cool. Give credit for that. Wow. That's very, very neat. cool. Oh wow! Did uh, in working with you uh, on the track uh, with, with Quincy, as once you went to the studio and started working with it, how involved was Quincy on, on this track? I mean, did he? Now, granted, you were probably programming and breathing, you know, your talents into the whole thing. But what did he bring to the table, and how did you work with Quincy on this? He brought quite a lot, actually, on, mm-hmm. especially on this tune. I, I just kind of brought in my demo. You know, I brought in my mm-hmm. drum machine, you know, my LM1 drum machine program and my bass, that, the bass that's still on the record. Uh, mm-hmm. um, it was just my program bass with the sequencer. I played the, the basic Rhodes part on a, on a synthesizer called the GS1 from Yamaha at the time. Sure. This is before DXs and all that stuff. It was their first, uh, their first FM synth. Mm. Um, Anyway, and then but then Quincy went and ran with it. He, Michael Boddicker did a synth overdub in there, mm-hmm. did some emulator parts, and then he, Quincy brought in Steve Lukather to do a part I would have never done in a million years. Um, that of course I to this day I think it's you know when I first heard it I was completely outraged, and forty million <laughs> records later I think it's a genius. <laughs> That's amazing! You know? Wow. Yeah, but Quincy definitely put his he put his stamp on it. Um, mm-hmm. It was funny, by, he loved the way I did the chorus, and especially on my demo, I had these really long tape slaps. I had like two separate tape slaps set up on my vocals because they were just really long, and they didn't like regenerate or repeat. It was just each one was just like a single slap, and uh, um, after Bruce Redeen had mixed it, mm-hmm. and he played it for Quincy, Quincy had me come in, and Bruce was real sweet and let me... He wa- Quincy wanted those tape slaps on the vocal exactly like my demo. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> he set those up exactly like that. I was the only guy who was like allowed in the room when Bruce was mixing. Just oh, set that's up those slaps. <laughs> that's interesting. Bruce is an amazing engineer. Yes, he is. Yeah. Have you heard the story of one of our past guests? Uh, in fact, um, we talked to Michael Sambello. And, uh-huh. uh, of course, who is the, the writer of uh, of a track that almost made it on Thriller, which was yeah, Carnival. Yeah, Carousel. Yeah. It's, uh, it's funny how, uh, how it's, uh, you know, I said, yeah, I just got knocked off by human nature, you know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. That was sort of interesting how, how we mentioned that. But I guess that, that track got on uh, the anniversary yeah, album. Yeah, the 25th anniversary yeah. anniversary. It did. It, it did. did. Not, the, uh, not the 24th. I think it was on the 10th anniversary Something album. Something like that. Okay. okay. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, that's neat. Well, yeah, I was know. glad it finally got on there. <laughs> <laughs> it, was, it, it was a good track, you know. <laughs> you know, I'd been feeling guilty for a while there. <laughs> well, I want to jump back over to Toto for just a second, and, and Toto Four was really, it, that was, in in my opinion, was just a magical album, and I still I still listen to it often, and it's it's such a a solid effort from start to finish, and and it was, uh, you know, that period in general was a pretty magical period for for you and all of the guys in Toto. Not, I mean, not only was Toto Four a huge success, but you know, you were part of Michael Jackson's success as well. I mean, really, if you think about it, in those two short years, you guys had your hands on something like 15 Grammys. So give us an idea of how you guys were handling your success, and, and you, you guys were in such demand at that period. I mean, was it yeah. as, I would just assume, I would just assume uh, you know, based on everything that was happening at that time, you guys were in incredible demand and, and extremely busy. It was an amazing time. It mm-hmm. was really an amazing time. There was... Um, what can I say? We were on fire, you know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, um, we were on fire. We just, uh, you know, we, I was just, you know, I, I just lived to work in the studio. And, mm-hmm. and Toto 4 was as strong as it was because of the right chemistry mm-hmm. as far as the, the, the tension went. 
went and stuff with a band. Yeah, you know right. what I mean? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. A band's got a lot of big personalities and a lot of egos and all that stuff. And and for a while, sometimes you know, we held it together for a really long time. And and uh, um, but there was this, you know, there was this tension. But it was a it was a healthy tension. But mm-hmm. there was always this kind of headbutting. I always kind of saw things differently than the other guys did. I always felt, you know what I mean? Sure. Uh-huh. I wanted to do these more kind of, you know, grandiose live shows, all of Pink Floyd and Jethro Tull and all that kind of <laughs> stuff. And, and um, you know, I was never a player the way the guys in the bands were players. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Luke, when it was time to do a guitar solo, you know what I mean? You, uh, uh, Paige's big production trick would be to bring in the most beautiful receptionist that worked at the studio to have her just stick her head in the door when Luke there was doing his final guitar solos and he would wail, you know what I mean? And he would, you know what I mean? He'd play these amazing solos at the drop of a hat, you know? Right. Uh, uh, you know, my solo on Rosanna, which I'm very, very proud of, oh, yeah. was the result of like, you know, two weeks of work, you know? Right. Two weeks of work. It was just, you know what I mean, of, of building and layering and experimenting and... Sure. and trying all kinds of stuff, which, you know, no one in the band wanted to watch me do that stuff. You exactly, know? right. Mm-hmm. Nobody had the patience for that. Right. Just like, just fucking play, you know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But I kind of had in my head, I wasn't, you know, a good improviser, and I just kind of had this thing in my head where I wanted to be able to kind of arrange, compose solos, you know what I mean? Kind of yeah. do these sound collages and stuff, you know? Right, sure, sure. You know, and, and but I, you know, I'll, I'll forever be indebted to the band for giving me the opportunity to do that stuff on a record like Rosanna, you know yeah. what I mean? Sure. Right. It was a huge single, you know? Mm-hmm. Was it a surprise for you when David Hungate decided to leave uh, for his own reasons, obviously, but... Uh, Not uh, really. Uh, it wasn't really a surprise. Uh, you know, I, we all had mixed feelings about it, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We just wanted him to be happy, and sure. he kind of was never really fitting in as far as the the hang went. I mean, musically, you know, musically, he, uh, uh, you know, his it, the work speaks for itself. You know what I mean? Right, right. Musically, there's I don't know if there's a better bass player in the world, as far as I'm concerned. Absolutely. But in a sense, his departure though was was in a sense bittersweet because then you got to bring your brother into the fold. Absolutely, we were yeah. all thrilled about that. Yeah. You know, I got to be in the band with both of my brothers for a while, and that was right. that was heaven for a while. Yeah. 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 What was Mike doing right before he joined? Oh, Mike had been, you know, Mike was very busy in the studio. Mike did all kinds of stuff in the studio. And Mike toured a lot, too. With uh, uh, He toured with Seals and Crofts for years. Yeah, right, that's and right. a lot yeah. of other bands. You know, Jeff and Paige had even toured with Seals and Crofts for a time. But sure. uh, Mike Mike kept that gig for a long time. And, mm-hmm. and Mike was very busy in the studio. He did a lot of sessions for guys like David Foster and... Uh, a lot of other producers that I never worked for that they loved the way Mike played, and uh, you know Mike's the bass player on the on the soundtrack to the movie Grease. You know, yeah, exactly. Right? <laughs> <laughs> and all kinds of really cool stuff that uh, you know what I mean. Oh yeah, you know, there's there's probably no other bass player that I've ever seen where I can actually feel the groove by looking at him. No doubt, because you know he just he just paints a picture with his face when he plays. Oh, yeah. I was I was nine years old back in '78 when I got hooked on Toto, and I you know I've been a huge fan ever since. And you know I never had a chance to see you pre- you perform you know live back in those days. I was, I was just too young. But I have a I have a video of a gig you guys did in Japan like in 1980. It was it's probably a bootleg, and and I I just loved watching you in particular play. I mean you were <laughs> like a huge ball of energy jumping around and stuff. I mean you're what a showman. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he doesn't remember that, Rick. He doesn't remember that. <laughs> yeah, they tell me yes, I, I was a ball of energy. <laughs> yes, <sir. laughs> no, Next <it's>, question. <laughs> to put it mildly. 
<laughs> yeah, I had a lot of fun playing live. I, I, uh, <laughs> uh, what I was, what I used to try to do live, what I, what I, how I tried to make my persona was, was to have all these synths and have all this, sure. have all these piles of synthesizers and all this stuff. But, but what I was attempting to do was to like, to just be cooler than thou and, and make it like this stuff's a synth. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. uh, just okay. have it, yeah. you know, just oh, have yeah. us kind of be able to slap it around and, uh, make like, oh, these sounds just happen to show up, you know, right when I need them. You know what I mean? Yeah. I tried to hide all the, the hours upon hours upon hours I spent with that stuff. And yeah. Getting it to behave and getting it to, <laughs> to work live, you know. I mean, you must have had, in that, in that gig, you must have had at least uh, two racks. Of course, you were in the center. You'd spread out your arms. There must have been at least five or six keyboards on each side. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and there's a lot of polyfusion stuff, too. I, Absolutely. I, uh, I made sure all that stuff wasn't there for looks, you know? Yeah, and, really. Uh, You'd mentioned a second ago about, you know, there was a period there where you and, and Mike and, and Jeff were all in the band at the same time. And I was just curious, you know, uh, how did that work out? I mean, being that you were so close, you know, family, did you guys get along for the most part? Or were there some times when the closeness of being family caused you to butt heads? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Jeff and I bumped heads. Yeah. Jeff and I bumped heads all the time. We, we, when we grew As we grew up, we bumped heads major when we lived together at home. Mm-hmm. And then when he moved out... When he got his own place, he became like the best older brother anyone could ever wish for, you right. know. And then in the band, you know what I mean? I just was, you know, the first few years, we were just, I was just grateful to be in the band. But as I became, you know, as I came into myself and, and uh, started demanding certain things and going for certain stuff in the group, tensions arose, you know. Jeff was such a pure player, you know what I mean? Right, sure. And I was such the opposite of that, you know what I mean? I was such a studio rat and... Uh, um, you know, into all this technical stuff and playing to clicks and, you know, begging him to do all this kind of stuff. And he didn't want to know about that stuff. Yeah, you know? right. And so it, it caused a lot of tension. And, and um, but I got to say, when I left the band, after I left the band, he mm-hmm. couldn't have been a better older brother. He would come over on a Sunday, play on any demo I asked him to, play sure. on any synth pads I wanted to. He would do anything for me, you yeah. know what I mean, musically and stuff. So um, yeah. I'm glad... Uh, uh, I'm glad that that was fresh in my mind, you know, and still is fresh in my mind. You know? Right. Yeah. I know that there was a plan uh, for Toto to go out on the 30th anniversary tour, but unfortunately it never happened. So if, if, it, if it had happened, were you planning to be a part of that or on this tour? Yeah, I would, I would have done that. I've, yeah. I've, you know, I've always stayed in good graces with the band. Sure, sure, sure. You know, I've, I've worked on most of the records they did, if not all of them. Exactly, you know. In some way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. Right. You know, s- since you've left the band in the 80s, you know, you've immersed yourself, uh, you know, quite very much in a, in a variety of musical projects, including some film. And, uh, you know, when you look back at the vast, you know, the big body of work that you've uh, created over your career, you know, is, is there a personal, I mean, can you mention maybe, you know, uh, I mean, obvi- the obvious high points are, uh, you know, um, you know, your songs like Human Nature, but yeah. what are other things that uh, we wouldn't really know of Steve's, you know, self you know, analysis and, and think of, you know, what are my high points? You follow me? It's a good question, but it's, you know, I got to say, it's, it's a bitch when you peak when you're 24, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know I'm, and I'm not done yet. I mean, I, a lot of this film stuff has been, I, and I love working for film. I mean, what I found out is, is being in a band like Toto, I never knew if I could, you know, work under a deadline. You know what I mean? Right. Mm-hmm. We would take nine months to make a record, you know? You know, no one was waiting on my songs. If I got a song on there, it was because one just kind of popped out and, and uh, yeah. you know, they would put it on there, but they weren't waiting for my songs to be done. So, 
you know, my close friend James Newton Howard after I left the band, and I was just kind of writing songs. I was floundering around for a long time, and, and um, he was way into film and stuff, and he asked me if I'd, if I'd like to try doing it, and I honestly didn't know if I could. I didn't know if I could have, you know, a bunch of music done by Thursday. You know right, what I'm saying? Exactly, right. yeah. But um, what I found was that not only could I have it done by Thursday, but that I, I loved having to have it done by Thursday. You know? mm-hmm. Right. I loved the deadline, and I still, to this day, I mean, that's um, what I try to bring over from my film work to my just writing songs is is mm-hmm. that kind of work discipline where you don't always have to feel like going to the studio, you know, when you work. Mm-hmm. It's okay if you don't feel like it, you know. Right. Um, you know, I used to think that the stars had to be aligned for me to write a song or something. <laughs> bullshit, you know what I mean? Sometimes it's just work, you know? Yeah. Sometimes it's just work. And all of a sudden I started hearing about, like, you know, songwriters that I love, guys like Randy Newman, who they'd yeah. get ready to work on an album. They'd go to write an album. They'd rent an office space. They'd put an upright piano in there. They'd get a pile of yellow tablets and pencils yeah. and a cassette player, and they'd go in there 9 to 5 every day, you know? Yeah, exactly. And treat it like a 9 to 5 job, you yeah, know? Right, right. Let and, the way- uh, yeah. you know, I found doing film work that even though maybe going to the studio is the last thing I feel like I still would write some cool stuff, you know? And it just kind of has made me grow up, you know, mm-hmm. in a certain way about my writing. And I'm still, I still struggle with that. I still struggle with my discipline and procrastination and, and um, you know, I'd love to have much more output. I know um, just from the little sampling of fans I read on Facebook and stuff like that, people don't even, they don't know that I did anything after I left Toto. They think I've just been, you know what I mean? Yeah hanging out by the pool or something. I don't know what they think I've been doing, but um, I've got a lot of songs started that are, are you know, almost finished and stuff. I've got a couple albums worth of material. I'm dying to finish some of this stuff up and get it out there. I'd read that, you know, there's you had been working on various songs over the years and, and wondered if you might be uh, close to finishing some of that and, and perhaps uh, going to be releasing any of that anytime soon. Yeah, I mean, one thing you can hear right now is, uh, you know, before, uh, on, on the 25th anniversary of Thriller, he did add another song of mine called For All Time. Okay. That's on there. You could check out. It's on the 25th anniversary of Thriller. Cool. Very cool. Yeah, but that was, that, even that was written, you know what I mean, was written 17 years ago. Or yeah. Like <laughs> exactly. But yeah, I will, uh, people will be hearing more from me soon, Good. as far as songs go. And let's take another quick break and take a sneak peek at a new track by Steve. And in fact, this one is so new that the lyrics aren't even finished yet. And this is a song called Ready or Not. Backs as though they couldn't care 
couldn't care I want you taking all your money Put it in a big bank Then you find you're alone You lay away from bed tonight in the morning your baby's coming home And that was a track called Ready or Not it's a new work in progress by our guest today, Steve Percaro, and it's you know it's music that you know we certainly hope Eddie and I here hope we'll get an opportunity to be released uh, one of these days. Absolutely. You know, I've never had anyone beat my door down, and I'm just you know I'm just reaching a point and reaching an age where I just want to you know for the for the seven people out there who who are who are Steve Percaro fans, I want well, I want to give them some, some more stuff. Well, that's an interesting point because you know we uh, earlier this year we interviewed Richard Page. And uh-huh. uh, you know he's he's kind of been silent for a while, and he's yeah. he's uh, kind of getting back. He he really likes this whole you know concept uh, of when you have a song ready to go, just you know put it up on iTunes, you know, and just yeah. and let those people who really appreciate what he he does download it. You know, he's he's to the point now to where he's thrown his hands in the air at the you know record labels and the whole you know industry in general, and he's just using the internet and iTunes and, and various outlets like that to release his music to the fans who completely appreciate who he is and what he does. Yeah, I should do exactly that, probably. You know, we started uh, to talk a moment ago about the work you produced for film and television, and mm-hmm. I didn't want to let the topic slip by us, so we're going to take a break and listen to a montage of cues that you've written and performed for several television shows. And, and this first one is a sample of a cue that was used in a television show called Gideon's Crossing. Okay, let's let's continue on. And this next cue is one that you created and was used in the television series Prince of Motor City. Thank you. 
And this final cue was used in an NBC television series from last fall, fall of 2008, called Reigns, and it starred Jeff Goldblum. And uh, those were a collection of cues that Steve has created for various television shows. And uh, that was some, some very cool work. Oh, that's awesome. Oh, thanks. Eddie and I have had, you know, the good fortune of having interviewed so many amazing musicians that, you know, had crossed paths with your brother Jeff. And uh, all of them have had nothing but, you know, positive words about him as a musician mm-hmm. and, and as a human being. And, you know, we'd love to hear your words about Jeff as a person and as a musician. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, everything you've heard is true. I mean, I can honestly say Jeff and I, you know, like I've told you, we we bumped heads in a big way. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. We definitely had brother issues, mm-hmm. you know. But um, uh, um, having said that, there was uh, uh, everything everyone says about him is true. I mean, he would literally, you know, if you told him you liked his shirt, off it came and he handed it to you. Yeah. You know, <laughs> okay. um, he was that way with me as much as he was that way with strangers or whatever, you mm-hmm. know. He was really the coolest older brother in the world. Um, you know, he, you know, it's because of him that I've, that I believe me, if it wasn't for Jeff, you know what I mean? No one would know who the hell I am. Uh, um, because of Jeff, we all, all of us shot higher. You know what I mean? We set our sights higher yeah, than yeah. we normally ever would have. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Jeff just kind of brought everybody up to their best game, you know? And I had decided that if I was going to be the synth geek in the band, there was going to be no better synth geek out there than me. (laughs) Right. You know, if that was my lot in life, I was going to do amazing fucking synthesizers on the records. It wasn't going to be... And they used to beg me, especially Jeff and and Luke. All the guys would see me go and work for Quincy, and in three hours, I would do the synth overdubs on three songs, say. You know what I mean? (laughs) Right, exactly. That's what people hired me for, because I was real good at it, and I could go in there and nail it and be done with it, you know? Right, right. And they used to beg me, why can't you just do that on Total Records? <laughs> why won't you just do that on our stuff? And it was because this was my band, you know what I mean? Yeah, right. I right. wanted to make it interesting. You know, if I was going to have to play this stuff for the rest of my life, right. I wanted it to be interesting, you know right. what I mean? Mm-hmm. I didn't want it to be just another synth overdub or a string ensemble line or whatever, you know what I mean? And it, it caused a lot of friction mm-hmm. in the band, you know, not just with Jeff, but... Uh, Definitely, Jeff was, uh, you know, of the opinion that, uh, you know, the less of that stuff, the better. Right. You know, he mm-hmm. was such a player, and he just kind of 
demanded it from all the guys. So when I left, it was kind of this great relief. You know what I mean? You know what I left, too? You know what I mean? It was very Nirvana was coming out. Everybody was kind of, it wasn't even, it wasn't stylish to have a keyboard player in your yeah, band yeah. anymore. That's Let alone two, you know? Right. That's an interesting you know point. I mean? Let alone two doing this kind of pompous, symphonic <laughs> rock stuff that we would, right. you know, that I loved. You know what I mean? Right. That's that an I interesting loved, point. But it was, that kind of music became very unpopular, you know? Mm-hmm. And they were just kept talking about how we were going to have less keyboards and less keyboards and less keyboards. And I was kind of like, you know what I mean? I don't want to, I didn't want to be around if there's going to be less keyboards, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, if this isn't putting you too much on the spot, uh, share with us an interesting or even a, a funny story about Jeff growing up or maybe something from your, from your days of, of touring with him uh, with Toto. You know, there's just too many. There's just <laughs> too many. Nothing that um, right this second sticks yeah. out. If I, if I think of anything, you know, it, it was, you guys got to understand, it, it was an adventure the whole time. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> you know, it I'm was sure it an was. adventure the whole time. It, we were having so much fun. For me, it was like it was like being a nine year old at Disneyland every day. You know, this was my job. You know what I mean? Right. And I was just in heaven. You know, mm-hmm. you know, because I was doing it all. I, I was doing session work, and and with Toto, I got to be in a band that was actually on the radio, and uh, um, we got to tour. You know, I got to live out all my you know my Beatles on the Ed Sullivan show fantasies you know exactly. yeah. playing in Budokan and stuff and it just was it just was a great time yeah I'll jump ahead a little bit back in 97 you and your brother Mike formed uh, the Picaro brothers and created a song called uh, Young at Heart that was the official song for the Champions League final and uh, the song was you know a really powerful ballad that you and uh, you, I think you brought in Carlos Vega on drums and uh, you re- reunited with uh, Joseph Williams for lead and backing vocals and tell us how you got involved in creating this song for the Champions League final that was a friend of Mike's, Alex Asadi. Okay. Uh, was just a friend of Mike's who did, um, at the time, he was an attorney for the company RTL in Germany, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. a big television company. So that was through that. And, you know, Mike and I, over the years, had tried many times to get a Picaro Brothers thing going, and it just, um, you know, either I would get a TV show, he'd be busy with Toto. There would just would seem to always be something that came up that uh, stopped us from completing that project you know mm-hmm. what i mean yeah but we did seem to squirt that uh that one little single off yeah yeah you know when we last talked to your dad uh we started talking not only of, of you three three brothers but uh, we got to talk about mike and just uh his his talents and everything and uh uh he, he's just so impressed and i think uh you know it brings me to the question you know speaking of mike you know we you know can you give us an update of how how he's doing we we miss him our thoughts and prayers are with him and that we you know we just hope that he's on the mend you know Mike's having a rough time. Yeah. He's having a rough time. He's uh, he's doing okay, but he's having a real rough time. We just yeah. gotta uh, we just gotta visualize mm-hmm. our Mike being uh, being uh, healthy. You know. Yeah, yeah. We'll send him our regards and and our love from everybody that that's listening. I will. Thank so, you. Yes, definitely. We asked your dad uh, also on, on the last interview some questions of, of course, uh, the infamous session recorded in 83, uh, James Newton Howard and Friends. And, um, of course, that was a project that was uh, commissioned by, by Yamaha to debut the, the DX lines. Um, you know, of course, the players were in, in a room. You, uh, David, yeah. and, you know, James, you know, yeah. Jeff. I'm really proud of that. And I your mean, dad. Me, me being a studio you know, being Mr. Overdub, you know mm-hmm. what I mean? I, mm-hmm. I rarely ever got to play on live sessions at all or on the basic tracks. And 
there we did this direct-to-disc album, you know what I mean? Talk about a live album, huh? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And, uh, yeah, we had actually gotten together before the DX thing. We had done right. some stuff for Yamaha before that. And okay. the only reason it was called James Newton Howard and Friends was because legally, you know what I mean, David and I couldn't be on an album cover, you yeah. know, that wasn't Toto. You sure, know? sure, sure, yeah. Yeah, we all had songs on that. I had a song called She on that album. Oh, David had beautiful. a couple songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, James, of course, had some stuff, and... Um, that was a blast, and of course we had, you know, we had the great Bill Schnee mixing us live. Right, Jack, right. Jet Puig, I think he was uh, behind the board too. Yeah, but um, mostly Bill. Just Bill, yeah. It was mostly Bill doing it live. Wow. Uh, uh, Jack might have had something to do with that. I know he was Bill's assistant for a long time. Yeah. But that was mostly Bill doing it live. Bill came and saw us at a NAMM show and um, brought uh, the powers that be mm-hmm. for uh, Sheffield Labs. I think uh, Lincoln Mayorga, Doug Sachs, people like that. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. um, brought them to see us and they you know thought it'd be perfect for a directed disc album and while we're chatting about this album uh let's go ahead and stop and play a track that steve wrote this one's called she and this is from the james newton howard and friends project That was the track She, written by our guest Steve Picaro, that appeared on the James Newton Howard and Friends project, recorded direct to disc back in 1984. 
on that recording, um, you had three keyboards. You had the DX7, DX9, and the GS1. And you also had a grand piano, but um, and, and of course, I've read the liner notes for years. I, I have one of the original LPs, the vinyls, the original master recording of it, which um, I just I just love it. But one thing that the liner notes don't tell us is who was behind which DX. In other words, um, you know, was uh, grand. I think David was playing the grand piano and a synth, but which guys were behind the DX7, the 9, or the GS1? Well, we all had everything, you know what Did I mean, you? as far as, uh, I mean, uh, some of us would have an extra thing, like I had a CS80V in my setup Gotcha. to do some synth bass thing, like on, uh, like on Caesar, like on the first tune and stuff yeah. like that, uh-huh. but really, pretty much we all had kind of duplicate setups, I follow you, know? you. Okay. and it would change depending on which song, that's why there was no blow-by-blow Right who played what, because it would always change. On my song, She, I played the basic keyboard part. I got gotcha. you. You know what I mean? The basic, yeah. say, Rhodes part. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? On other songs, it would be David or James. It was just, we were all, all over the place. Yeah. You also performed this uh, live at the, I believe, at the Anaheim NAMM show, didn't you? Yeah, we did a bunch. We did a bunch of NAMM shows, uh, or not just NAMM shows. Yeah, we did the Anaheim NAMM show, but then we also did, uh, uh, you know, we did it in Japan. We did it in Chicago. Really? We did a bunch of stuff for Yamaha. Yeah, did you Yamaha. Did you record when you would go out to the NAMM shows? Did you record every single album or every track? No, no, just a few. You mean you mean did we record every every performance? No, no, no. Or were you basically playing the oh, yeah. the material from the Friends oh, yeah. album live? Yeah, everything. Wow, that's neat. Oh yeah. Cool. Yeah, and actually, Jeff came out. Jeff did a few things. The first time we did it, we did it with a drum machine, and then after that, we did it with. Um, uh, we actually recorded Jeff. We pre-recorded him, so we played along to his tracks. Ah, oh, I cool. see. And then he then he actually did a bunch of shows with us too. It was very cool. Wow, that's neat. Um, our correspondent Scott Gross out of uh, Tampa, Florida, he asked a question, and it's basically this: uh, He was in the audience for the NAM 2000 tribute to Mike McDonald, and uh-huh. he said that uh, you really seemed to be having a blast as part of the house band that evening. He said uh-huh. he, he said it was an incredible lineup of talent on that stage. Do you miss performing live? Oh, absolutely, yeah. all the time. I don't miss touring. I don't miss, you know what I mean? I don't yeah. miss all the the travel bummers and being away from my family and being away from my kids and all that stuff. I don't miss that, right. you know what I mean? Um, but I do miss playing live. Mm-hmm. I do miss playing live. Yeah. Hey, you know, jumping ahead here, on October 12th, coming up here this year, the, the original members of Toto will be inducted into the uh, Musicians Hall of Fame down in Nashville and uh, we talked to David Hungate, and he said that he'll he'll be there too, and he I, I suppose Mike will be part of that as well. So um, you got to be looking forward to that. That's an honor. Yeah, I'm real excited about that. That's very cool. Yeah. Eddie and I are going to be down there for yeah, that as well. We'll be there. Yep. That's oh, great. Gonna, that's going to be fun. I talked great. to we talked to David uh, I think a couple of weeks, and he said, "Oh yeah, we're going to hook up there, and uh, I think it's going to be a, a neat little party." So we're looking forward to that. Seeing you there. Cool. Wonderful. You know. We'll hang. Yes, we will. You know, most recently you uh, you were credited on on playing keys for um, the the last total release, falling in between. Uh-huh. And um, how did it go with that? And uh, you know, working with the old band, and how deep did you immerse yourself? I it mean, went great. Uh, did you enjoy uh, that? Yeah. You know, the guys have kind of uh, uh, you know, it's pretty funny uh, to me. You know, I don't think they. How do I put this? It was amazing. They they came over. We listened to stuff. They just kind of dropped things off at my studio and said, "Do your thing. Do whatever you want to do." Yeah. You know, and um, even on one of the songs, I suggested a big edit. You know, in the song itself, which they wound up doing. 
but uh, it, it was it was a great experience. That's me. You know, I, I did more than I've usually been doing on their records. You mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. sometimes I just come in and help them with an overdub or help David with a synth sound or something like that. Mm-hmm. But uh, uh, this time around, I got a little more involved because they they gave me a little more rope this time than they usually. Gotcha. You're pretty involved on the song "King of the World," weren't you? Yeah, yeah, that's the one. I really like that song. And yeah, me too. I uh, uh, I just I suggested an edit that they did that took out a big chunk and made the song make a lot more sense to me. Yeah, I, that was real strong. I love your your synth patch, uh, your, your keyboard work at the very end, uh, the very analog sound. Uh, it just comes in a few bars before the ending, but it case, takes you all the way to the ending. I thought it was a nice nice touch on uh, on on. Uh, it reminded me of of old Toto stuff. It's just really oh, cool. cool. <laughs> you know, you know what I'm talking about, right? I think so. It's yeah. been a while since I've heard yeah. it. Yeah, it's it's an it's a neat uh, patch that you did at the very what, end. What measure was that, Eddie? Oh, I give him the measure. <laughs> <laughs> I can sing it to you, but I've ruined the interview. <laughs> we might have to play a clip of that. You know, <laughs> well, hey, give us have to. give us an idea of what kinds of projects you've been working on recently, and what's uh, on the horizon for you. Well, I, you know, actually, I've been in songwriting mode. Uh, I really have. I'm waiting to find out about, about a couple film gigs. Um, I'm waiting to hear about that. But um, in the meantime, I'm just writing songs right now, and I'm, I'm really anxious to get some stuff out there. That's I'm awesome. Really That's good to know. For, some, for the people who like my songs with Toto, especially, and stuff, and like that kind of human nature thing, that, uh, to give him an album of that. Yeah. Um, one last question. It's uh, from a fan, John Marshall, and he has this uh, great idea. He said he wants to know if there's a, if you would ever consider doing a solo album consisting of uh, your unique interpretations of songs that you recorded uh, or you wrote for Toto, others or other songs that you've done during the years. Yeah, it would be other songs I've done during the years. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, the great thing with Toto was that I got to do them exactly the way I wanted to do them. Right. And, you know, I got to, you know, with great engineers, great mixers, you mm-hmm. know, uh, uh, its feeling has a London string section on it. I right. mean, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, I'm not going to get better than that in my home studio. You mm-hmm. know what I'm saying? Right. Uh, uh, you know, we did everything we could to make the records as good as we could make them. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, you know, I'm thrilled with how my songs came out. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely. You know, with Toto, there's no, uh, there's, you know, the, my only regrets are personal ones. Like I've said, I'd love to, I'd love to have its feeling back and be able to write that second verse, which I never wrote. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, just the first verse repeated. That drives me crazy. You know what I mean? <laughs> exactly. Uh, <laughs> like I said, there's a there's a thing on Leah where you know what I mean. I wish I could just one line. I wish I could have it back to like replace it. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, it's nothing to do with the production or anything like sure, that, or exactly. the way the musicians played on it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. The artist is never pleased with the painting, you know, Steve. <laughs> yeah. But I'm thrilled. You know. But I'm really excited about the stuff I've been writing lately, and the stuff I've been writing the last 15 years or whatever, which no one has heard. I've I've got a bunch of stuff that's kind of right on the edge of being ready to go. Stylistically, know? is there anything different? I mean, we sort of taken a, a conversation from the beginning and to where you are now. Stylistically, and what you've learned with the writing and so forth. What's what's changing? Uh, what in how you're approaching a song now? You know, a little bit of my harmonic sense. I'm I'm doing. You know what I mean? It's it's just kind of changing it. To me, it still mm-hmm. really sounds like me. Yeah. You know, I mean, all my friends, they can tell my songs, like, within, you know, the first three beats, you know. They know I wrote the song, you know what right. I mean? Sure. There's always, you know, an element of, of atmosphere and stuff like that, which is really important to me and vibe, you know. We're about to wrap up here, but I have one more comment and one more sure. question for you. The comment is is, is that I uh, you worked on a, a show called North Shore. 
And uh, I actually did some, uh, uh, we're in Indianapolis, but there was an actor that was in that show that lived here, and I did some overdubs for that, some some uh, dialogue replacement for that show. And uh, no and it kind of got me hooked into the show, and I watched it all the time. And I remember the first episode, <laughs> I noticed the credits at the end. I thought, oh, it's Steve Perkar. He did that. <laughs> <laughs> so that was good. That was great. I, I like that show. I didn't live very long, but. Uh, no, it didn't. But it was an interesting show. Nor then, should it have. <laughs> <laughs> the truth comes out. <laughs> but it was really fun. But uh, and then my really qu- and then my question is, and and maybe you've been asked this before, and I have you seen any of the Yacht Rock episodes? Oh, I love Yacht Rock. <laughs> Not only have I seen the Yacht Rock. I met I met a couple of the guys. They were they were really sweet. Did you meet them? Huh? <laughs> you met the guys? I met the guys. I met a couple of the guys. That's funny. Yeah, they were very cool. It's hysterical. <laughs> That's you know? hilarious. I, when you gotta I, love Yacht Rock. I remember when I first saw them, I, I watched them and I thought, I'm offended. I, I like all these bands. I like all these guys. <laughs> and then as I watched them, I thought, this stuff is really clever. <laughs> you know what? The, the place it comes from, I mean, you know what I mean? What a, you know, the, it, it comes from this place where it was just all these guys friends who kind of grew up, you know, looking at their parents' record collection. Right, yeah. right. And just seeing all these names, seeing these same names, uh-huh. you know, on these records and stuff. Right. And it, and it comes from a place of, of uh, you know, I mean, that's what they tell me anyway. They may be laughing behind my back as I'm walking away, but you know, they, they, you know, it comes from a place of they, they really admired us and respected us and stuff. It just was, uh, God, especially the one with uh, Michael Jackson, with one with, uh, <laughs> With Eddie Van Halen and Michael, <laughs> it's <just> yes, hysterical. <laughs> oh my goodness! I, we interviewed somebody recently, Eddie. If you can help me remember, it might have been Christopher Cross that we interviewed, and, and I think it might have been. And I asked him the same question if he had seen Yacht Rock because he was portrayed in some of those as well. That's right. And he said when he was in Japan, he noticed that in some record stores they actually have a section. Uh, in a couple of record stores he went into that was, you're you know, kidding. laid out that said, described yacht as rock. Yacht Rock. <laughs> oh, you're kidding. See, I love it. You know, no, it's just like in Japan or, or there's these parts, especially in Northern Europe, where they're whole, into the whole L.A. sound. They are. Yeah, exactly. They really are. What they call the L.A. sound, which no one uses that term here, you know. <laughs> yeah, but I know, no, but but I know what you mean. It's whole Yacht Rock thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which is it has never died, Steve. It has never died. <laughs> well, Steve, yeah, we really funny. appreciate the time and, and, and that you've given us today, and we've really enjoyed the interview. And uh, and hopefully, we can catch up again in the future. Uh, especially, you know, now that you're working on some new material, maybe down the road we can talk to you again and find out how things are going. Absolutely, That'd be great. That's All right. great. That'd be great. I like that. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks All right, a lot. We'll talk. We'll All talk. Right. To Take you care. Bye bye. Bye. Very special thanks to Steve Percaro for joining us on this episode of Inside Music Cast. Be sure to join us again on September 14th as we welcome back Bill Champlin. Also, very special thanks to the Inside Music Cast correspondents, Scott Gross, Kim Riley, Max Zape, and Brian Pearson. And check out our new website at InsideMusicCast.com, where you can join in on forum conversations about the musicians we cover here on Inside Music Cast, as well as a variety of other music-related topics. You can also catch up on past interviews, read the Inside Opinion blog, and check out bonus content that we'll be posting often. Find us at InsideMusicCast.com. For Eddie Cabello, I'm Rick Such. Thanks for listening to Inside Music Cast.